Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. I think after this sermon, I might want to sing that song again. And then Jesus saves, of course. Yeah. And kids, I'm looking forward to tonight. I know most of them are in children's church, some in here. And I do hope you'll come back. And the gospel will be proclaimed tonight. So I pray that you will also bring someone who knows, who needs to know Christ, who doesn't know Christ. So Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to picture Mary and Joseph after Mary has had the baby, Jesus, and they are in the temple there to dedicate him. These are two young parents who 10 months, maybe 11 months previous to this, did not expect to be in this situation. Mary supernaturally conceived Jesus through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, the stepfather, just a matter of Weeks before this dedication, he was in Nazareth working. Then he traveled down to Bethlehem with a very pregnant Mary. Mary gave birth in an animal stall, and we assume that Joseph would have helped with that. And eventually they took this infant over the hill, through the valley, up the steps of the temple to have Jesus be presented in the temple. And while they were there, there was a man named Simeon. And Simeon evidently was looking for the the comforter of Israel. He was one who was longing to see God's servant promised in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people. And the, the comfort of God's people would be that Messiah who would come to give his life as a ransom for many. And then... There's a point where Simeon turns and looks directly at Mary and says this to her, Luke 2, 34. Many will oppose him and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That's not the typical baby announcement They're going to oppose him. And this is right after Simeon has prophesied that this baby is going to be the one who will provide salvation for the Jewish people and Gentiles. So that's confusing. He will be opposed. I mean, isn't he the Messiah? Won't he be celebrated? He's the king, right? I mean, Her heart, her soul will be pierced? I mean, isn't she the most blessed of all women? Well, the promise, the prophecy here can only truly be understood if you understand that the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come and suffer He would give his life as a sacrifice. And through that 
substitutionary sacrifice, he would conquer. And so we're in Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah 53 is probably one of the clearest texts of Scripture that declares Jesus Christ as the one who was the promised servant of the Lord who came to give his life for his people. Israel, they were expecting, they were desiring a Messiah who would be like the next Alexander the Great. No, he would be the one who would come and and conquer through his might and through his power. But in Isaiah 53, God the Father promised that God's servant would succeed. He would succeed through his substitutionary suffering and death. Isaiah 53 is the fourth of uh, what they call the servant songs in Isaiah. And they're servant songs because right after the prophecy of the servant who was to come, there's a song of praise for Yahweh God that he sent his servant to save. In fact, if you look in Isaiah 53, you look at the next chapter, Isaiah 54, that's the song that follows up with that. So this is the fourth servant song. Really starts in Isaiah 52, 20, or 52:13. We studied that passage last week, and it goes to the end of chapter 53. We're just going to read Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. That will be our text this morning. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. I'm going to read this text of scripture, and I'm going to have a stand. It'll help you stretch your legs, but also it will help us. Remember, this is the word of God. Breathed out by the Holy Spirit given to us. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, we are so thankful for the hope this text gives that Jesus Christ truly is the Redeemer, the Savior, the substitute in our place, the one who died for us so that we could be reconciled to you and have peace and truly 
our souls can be spiritually healed. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Well, 700 years before Christ came as a baby, Judah was in trouble. They needed help. They needed to be rescued. The Assyrian army had just conquered the northern kingdom. Samaria, its capital, had been ransacked, burnt, leveled. There was genocide and abuse. And Judah was held up in Jerusalem, and they were certain that they were next. And that was the reality for those who were reading this prophecy and these prophecies in the book of Isaiah. I mean, the past few weeks, you might have read some of the atrocities committed by Hamas, some of those stories, they're terrible. But what's interesting about the Assyrians, they were like Hamas on steroids. They had the largest army in the world. They would go into villages and cities and nations and do whatever they wanted. And they committed some of the most horrific atrocities known to mankind. So you can imagine those in Jerusalem were shaking with fear. And so Isaiah wrote this book inspired by the Holy Spirit from God to his people so they would fear. Not just an army coming at them, but actually so they would fear God. Because God revealed to them the reason that Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered, the reason that Assyria is coming after you is because of your sins. You see, Judah, they were worshiping idols. They were taking their infants and they were killing them before idols, child sacrifice. They were committing open immorality. And so Isaiah wrote this to call them back to the Lord. Isaiah 59.1 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. He was saying, God can save you, Israel. God can rescue you. But your iniquities, he goes on to say in verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's not, it's not that God couldn't hear. It's that he refused to listen to their cries because they were not trusting in him. Their sins had given them a separation, a spiritual separation from him. And, and really the most dangerous thing for those Jews was not Assyria coming and killing them. The most dangerous thing was that their soul was separated from God and there was no hope for them outside of Yahweh God. And so Isaiah is written to say that God can save. And he saves through his servant, the Messiah. Isaiah 52, notice verse 13 here, God the Father speaking. He says, behold, my servant will succeed. Or your version may say, will act wisely. 
It's the idea is he will be so holy and so wise that he will succeed. Notice verse, verse 15, his success is in making atonement. He will sprinkle. You know, he'll make atonement for many nations. And then in Isaiah 53 verse 1, there's this transition where now you have a preacher and he's preaching to the Jewish people. So this is a Jewish preacher preaching to the Jewish people and he's giving the message of how God will atone for their sins. How will this servant of the Lord succeed in conquering and really saving his people and conquering sin? It's through the servant giving his life. It's through the sacrificial substitutionary death of the servant. And so I think you could sum up this passage of scripture and the message really of this preacher like this. And that is that God's servant is the only one able to succeed to provide salvation through his humility, his rejection, and his substitutionary death, which reconciles all who believe. That really is a summation of these six verses right there. God's servant, this promised servant is the only one able to succeed to provide salvation. And he does it through his humility, his rejection, and his substitutionary death, which reconciles all who believe. So first, look at God's servant is the only one able to provide salvation. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So again, this is a Jewish preacher, and he's asking these questions to the Jewish people. Who has believed this message? Who who has God revealed himself to be the one who saves? This chapter really is the gospel to the Jews. This is such a powerful text of scripture that just so clearly reveals that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, it's so powerful. I read this past week that there are synagogues, if not maybe all, but there are synagogues that won't read Isaiah 53 and the regular reading because it can cause so many Jewish people to stumble. Because they stumble over the fact that their Messiah was one who would suffer like this. And so they reinterpret the servant here to be Israel and not to be the Messiah. But this passage is so powerful because it's preaching the gospel. I mean, this is a clear gospel presentation, but here's what you need to understand. It's the gospel to the Jews. When we read a text of scripture like this, we can automatically just kind of put our name into a passage of scripture. But actually first, what we need to ask a text of scripture like this is, to whom was this written and why? And the answer to that question for Isaiah 53 is, this was written to the Jewish people. In fact, go back to Isaiah 52 and notice this. Notice Isaiah 52, verse 1. I'm just going to mention a couple lines here. So Isaiah 52, 1 says, awake, awake. And who's God talking to? Put on your strength, O Zion. So there's Judah, those who dwell in Jerusalem. Verse 2, 
Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. He's talking to those who dwell there in that capital city of Judah. Chapter 52, verse 4. Notice verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt. Who are those people? That's Israel. Chapter uh, 52, verse 6. Therefore, my people. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to, to whom? To Zion. That's the Jewish people. Your God reigns. And so look at, if you look at verse 7, the picture here is of a messenger who's going to towns. He's traveling around mountains and he's saying, listen, our king has won. Like we have already had the victory. And so he's announcing this. People are celebrating and they're saying, your feet are so beautiful. Do you like feet? Most people don't. A messenger traveling around would have cracked, bloody, swollen, sweaty, disgusting feet. Why, why would anyone ever say his feet are beautiful? It's not because they actually are beautiful, but they're beautiful to those people who hear the good news. <laughs> that that there's, there's no longer going to be a captivity. There's no longer going to be death. There's no longer going to be separation. Now our God reigns. So the message here is to the Jewish people that God, your God, Yahweh God, he reigns. And so what's interesting is, that's in chapter 52. Chapter 53, verse 1, starts off with a preacher, a Jewish preacher, saying, and here is how he conquers. So, so the messenger, the Jewish preachers go around, they say, your God reigns, Israel. Oh, well, how, how did he conquer? How, how did he win? Was it because he's so powerful, he just smashed everyone else? He actually won by being crushed himself. So if you look in Isaiah chapter 53, you can see that this is a message to the Jewish people that their God rescues through the servant who provides salvation through his substitutionary suffering and death. And so it's so important for us to understand that this is a gospel to the Jewish people. You see, the Bible says in Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then it's to the, what's the next line? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why it's important to understand this, because the gospel went to the Jews first. So that's what 50, Isaiah 53 is speaking about. But also Jesus, he came to the Jewish people. He presented himself as the king. The scripture says in John 1, 11, he came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. So God's people, Israel, rejected God's servant who came to provide salvation for them. They also rejected the Jewish preachers. So Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, make it very clear that this prophecy that Israel would not believe 
in their, the servant of Yahweh, they would reject the servant of Yahweh. In fact, if you look down in Isaiah 53, notice all those plural possessive pronouns, those the us and the we and the are, and they're sprinkled throughout those first six verses. So who, who is the, who are the, who are the us and the we and the our? Well, obviously it includes the, the preacher, but also it includes the Jewish people. So it's, it's the preacher himself, himself who is a Jew, and it's the Jewish people. So as we study this text, we just need to remember that this is a, a Jewish audience. It's important because when the scripture takes this passage and applies it in the New Testament, it's applying it to those Jewish people who, who did not believe. In John chapter 12, Jesus performed a miracle. Really, God the Father spoke to Jesus and people heard it and they rejected Jesus still. And so this is what was said by the apostle John, and he had a commentary on this about the unbelief of the Jewish people. In John 12, 37 and 38, the scripture says, though he had done so many signs before them, that's Jesus had performed so many miracles, they still did not believe. You see, the problem they had was a problem of unbelief. They did not believe Jesus, who is the word, and they did not believe the scripture that speaks God's words. The scripture is God's words. And so they rejected the word of God. It was unbelief. And here's, I think, a good moment to pause and remember this. And that is, is that that is the problem not only the Jewish people had, but all people have. Unbelief. Rejection of the word of God. And often people have their ideas of God and they, and they think, well, this, this is who I feel God is, or this is logically who I think God should be. Or maybe they hear from a religious leader or they read a religious book or they have, and they, and they form their idea about God based upon the opinions of other people. But who's the authority on who God is? It's God himself. And so this is a reminder to us that when we have an idea of who God is, our ideas must always come from the scripture. The question we must always ask is, what does God say? And, and, I, and I'm sure you have talked to so many people who have, oh, I think God's this, or, you know, I believe God's this. Who cares what you think? What does God think he is? Who does God think he is? Well, how do you know that? Look in the word of God. And see, the problem Israel had is they said, well, we think, we think the Messiah, and we think God's like this. And, and Jesus was saying, you're not believing the scriptures. You're not believing me. And so, John 12, 37, the scripture says, they still did not believe him. And then verse 38, you see the apostle John applies Isaiah 53 to this context. So the word spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. In other words, that passage of scripture shows if, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 demonstrates the Jewish people were rejecting the word of God. And, and really part of that rejection was also the fact that they thought they didn't really need a savior. They could save themselves. In fact, look at verse number 1, Isaiah 53 1. Notice the second question. To whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. The arm of the Lord doesn't mean God has arms. It's speaking of the power of God. It's a figure of speech to speak about Yahweh God's power and his alone to save. And so what he's saying here is this, is that it's been revealed to you that God is the only one who can save. He has the, he's the only one with the, the strength to rescue souls. And here is a theme throughout scripture, and that is that you must not, and we must not trust in ourselves. See, so often we can go back to this mindset that I think I'm okay on my own. I think, I think I'm good enough. You might even think to yourself, maybe you're good enough for God. Maybe you, you're, you're, you're accepted because you do these religious acts or do these different things. You think God accepts you based upon what you do. And the word of God disagrees. Because the word of God says, 2 Timothy 1.9, God saves and he calls to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. And so the message of God's word is you cannot save yourself. No person can do anything to save their soul. There was a lifeguard who was on duty and he noticed there was a, a gentleman of, that was a pretty large gentleman in the water and he was struggling. So this lifeguard swam out to this gentleman to try to help him, to try to rescue him. And as he got closer, he noticed this man was struggling. This man was, was fighting. This man was trying to stay above water. But he stayed a distance from this man, a couple feet away, because this man was, was struggling and swinging so, so wildly that, that if the lifeguard would have got near him, he would have taken him, the lifeguard, down under with him as well. This, this man was drowning in the water in an effort to save himself. He was trying to, trying to grasp and, and flail and try to reach for anything around him to save himself, but he couldn't save himself. And this lifeguard knew that this man could not be saved until this man stopped trying to save himself. And so he, he stayed his distance from the drowning man, not because he didn't care about him, but because he couldn't rescue him until he gave up. Until the man struggling stopped trusting in his own effort, but trusted in the lifeguard. Finally, the man's energy left. He, he had no more fight within him. He stopped flailing. He stopped fighting. He stopped trusting his own efforts. And the lifeguard came up from behind him and grabbed him from behind, grabbed his chin, put his elbow in his back, lifted him above the water and rested him on his hood hip, and then he swam to the edge of the pool and rescued this man. This man could not be rescued until he stopped trying to save himself. And friend, can I tell you this? God will not rescue you until you stop trying to save yourself. God does not rescue those who are trying their best, and he tries his best. No, God only rescues those who completely surrender and say, there's only one who can save me, and his name is Jesus. And so the message is that God's servant is the only one able to succeed to provide salvation, and he does it through, first, his humility. Notice verse number two. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And isn't that really a biography of Jesus Christ right there? I mean, if you look at verse 1, you can see that the arm of the Lord, really that arm of the Lord, the arm of Yahweh, is, is that servant. So this is saying the servant of Yahweh is Yahweh. And then verse 2, he grew up. Well, the only ones who can grow, God does not grow. The ones who grow are, are humans. Humans grow. So this, this text of scripture is saying this, the servant of the Lord, he is Yahweh, God, and he will become man. Isn't that pretty cool? He is 100% truly God, and he will become 100% truly man. And then verse 2, he says, he grew up before him. Who's the him? Well, that's Yahweh God. Wait a second. So he's God distinct from God. So it's really neat to be able to see the theological implications here. Notice he grew up like a young plant, like a a root out of dry ground. So the picture here is is of a a tree, and then you have this shoot that comes out of the tree. So think about the tree. That's a representation of there's going to be a family tree he's going to come out of. So he has this traceable human ancestry that he comes out of, but he's like this shoot. He's like this young shoot out of the tree that's not expected. You know, you have those trees and you have the nice, wonderful, big trees. And then at the bottom, there's this little shoot that comes out. And you're like, what's that down there for? That's what it's saying. It's like, this this little shoot that's going to come out. It's like, what's that about? That's not expected. And then notice it's a shoot. It's a root out of dry ground. So if you're going to grow something, if you're going to grow a plant, you, you want moist, you want wet, you want fertile soil. You don't want dry ground. If you plant something in dry ground, it's going to die. And that's what it's basically saying here. It's going to be like this root out of dry ground. It's not going to seem like it's going to be successful. His, his background, his, his, his economic situation, his social status will be like, yeah, nothing's going to come out of that. And do you see, that's why they were so offended. That's why the religious leaders and, and really the Jewish people were so offended at Jesus because it's like, who are you? You're from Nazareth. I mean, remember Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, won't this guy be connected? You know, won't the Messiah be, you know, someone who's from a, a prestigious family? Won't he be wealthy? Not from a poor girl. What's that about? And then notice verse number two. He had no form, that's his body. He had no majesty, that's his demeanor, his economic situation, his social status. He he had no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So here, this servant of Yahweh, God, will be lowly. He will be humble. He's just going to be ordinary. He has no beauty that we should desire him. Now, if you picture Jesus as this handsome, suave, charismatic man of the first century, you're 100% absolutely wrong because that's what the scripture says right here about him. He was ordinary. I mean, if you were to line up the men from the city of Nazareth and, and Jesus was among them, I guarantee, the scripture is saying, I guarantee 
you wouldn't be able to pick him out. He was average, maybe even below average. So there was nothing about him that caused you to say, wow, we should follow him. And truly, this is a description of what Christ was like, Jesus Christ. And then notice, also, he provided salvation through his humility and his rejection. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So remember the we here is speaking about Israel. And the, and the preacher here is including himself with Israel. He's saying, we, we, we did not, Israel did not esteem him. They did not value him as, as worth anything. It was like he was valueless. It was like, what, who is this guy? Get him out of our sight. Jesus repulsed the religious leaders because he was not what they were expecting. They did not expect a Messiah that was going to be like him. Who is this guy? And they considered his social and economic status, his humility, they considered that to be a weakness. That, that showed how powerless he was. Didn't show that he was important at all. And so therefore they rejected him. And, and then notice also, it's through his humility, his rejection, and then his substitutionary death. Verse 4 says, surely he has borne our griefs, that's our sicknesses, and he carried our sorrows. So here the preacher is declaring that God's servant would take upon himself the effects of the curse, the curse of sin. Our sicknesses and our sorrows, those are the sufferings of the world. And those came about because Genesis chapter 3 says that mankind sinned against God. And so God cursed the earth and he cursed it with suffering. And he cursed man and woman with death. And so here you have Jesus, the, the coming servant of the Lord. He would put upon himself the curse. But also look at the end of verse 4. God the Father would put upon him the curse. He would be cursed. Yet, verse 4, yet we esteemed him uh, smitten, or sorry, stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. So again, let's talk about this. Who's the we there? Have we got this down yet? Who's the we? It's the Jewish people. It's Israel, right? So when he's saying, we esteemed him, he's saying here, Israel, when, when they considered the servant, they considered him as one who was cursed, who was punished, who was executed by God. And when did that happen? Well, when Jesus was on the cross. As this preacher is saying, when Israel will look upon the servant of God, they will determine that he's being punished by God. And that's what happened to Jesus. Deuteronomy says any person who dies on a tree is cursed by God. So one of the ways that you could, as the, the Jewish people, demonstrate that someone, a criminal, was truly judged by God is you hang him on a tree. And it would show that God had killed them and God was going to send them to hell. And that's why the Jewish Leaders were so adamant 
that Jesus must be crucified. Crucify him, crucify him. Why is that? Because if you put him on that tree, on that cross, then it will show that God the Father, that God has cursed him. That's why when Jesus was dying, they mocked him and said, hey, if you can save yourself, come down. If you're truly the Messiah, I mean, what, what would happen? If you're truly the Messiah, you could save yourself and you could show us that you're not truly cursed and therefore you're the Messiah. And see, by the fact that Jesus died on a tree, it was confirmation for those religious leaders in, in Israel that he was not the Messiah because no Messiah is going to be cursed by God, right? But the prophecy in Isaiah 53 says, no, actually, he will be cursed by God. And what's interesting here, this preacher saying, we, that's the Jewish people, we esteemed him, we considered him as one cursed by God, as one afflicted, punished. Well, let me ask the question, were they right about that? Well, they weren't right to reject Jesus as the Messiah, but actually, they were right that he was cursed by God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was truly punished by God on the cross for our sins in our place. He became a curse for us so the curse upon us could be lifted. He's the innocent one who died for the guilty ones. So this is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. This is the great exchange that the one who was innocent died for the ones who are guilty. And he's innocent. He's sinless. In fact, you can see that in Isaiah 53. We'll see this next week, but look at verse 9. Verse 9 says that he, this is the servant, had done no violence. And there was, there is no deceit in his mouth. So if there's no deceit in his mouth, that means there's no deceit in his heart. And, and this is demonstrating that here, this servant of the Lord would be without sin. He would die not for his own sin, but for the sin of others. And this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Religious leaders tried to find accusations against him. They couldn't find any. So they came up with some false accusations, but even those didn't match. And then when they brought their crimes or his crimes up to Pilate, the Roman governor, he listened to the crimes and he talked to Jesus and he said, I, I don't find any fault in him. He even washed his hands to kind of say, well, I don't find any fault in him. And so I washed myself of this man's execution. The only thing that they could accuse him of that was true is that he claimed to be God. They accused him of blasphemy, but the accusation was true in that he claimed to be God, but it was also not a crime because he is God. But he was innocent. He was holy. He was perfect. God the Father crushed him, punished him for our sin. 
Notice the notice this this the 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 words here that speak of his substitutionary death. Notice he suffered as the atoning substitute for our sins. Notice Isaiah 53. Look at verse 5 and 6. I mean, you can see within that text of Scripture right there that the sacrificial system, it's, it's a call back to that system performed in the temple whereby a priest or a head of the home or the high priest at different times of the year would take a sacrificial lamb, would sacrifice that lamb on the altar to pay for the sins of Israel or if it was a head of the home for that family. So the innocent animal died for the sins of those people. The blood of that animal made atonement for their sins. Atonement means to cover and the, the atonement was the, the, the price paid to cover their sins so there could be reconciliation and forgiveness. So the atonement was the price paid to cover their sins so there could be reconciliation and atonement. And so the price was the price of death. That innocent animal died so those who sinned wouldn't have to die for their sins. So so the penalty of of sins upon the people was death. And instead of them experiencing the death for their sins, that innocent animal would die in their place. So the hope of Isaiah 53 is that there would be the servant of God who would be the atoning sacrifice for sins. He would actually atone for sins forever, not just for a month or for a year but he would atone for their sins for eternity. That he could save their souls and rescue their lives unto the Father. So the God the Father here is prophesied that he would lay, he would punish the servant as the perfect atoning sacrifice for sins. And so notice in verse number five, for he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced is a word used in Isaiah 51, nine, speaking of God punishing sins, punishing with death. The word transgressions speaks of really the the personal offense of sins. This word transgressions is used to describe Joseph's brother's sin against Joseph. It wasn't just that they sold him into slavery. I mean, their sin against Joseph was that they hated him, right? They despised him. And really that word transgressions demonstrates how our sin is viewed by God. It's like we spit in the face of God and you're like, oh, come on. I don't think of my sin like that, but God does. It's offensive to him in that way. But notice, he was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed means there's no coming back. This speaks of the intense suffering of Jesus' death. The word iniquity speaks of the, the guilt of sin that deserves punishment. This word iniquity is used to describe the the sin of Cain. Remember Cain who took a rock and murdered his brother? 
That's what iniquities is. It's, it's actually a, 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 it's a sin that deserves punishment. Someone's guilty and therefore they deserve the punishment that's due them. And so this word iniquities describes our sin against God. It's not just that we have crossed the line, but we actually deserve an eternal punishment for our sin. And notice these words of substitution. Verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So here you have this great exchange where Jesus Christ takes upon himself our sin and his punishment, and he gives what we don't deserve, and that is peace. That's peace with God. That's reconciliation with God. That's a restoration of the relationship with God. And also notice with his wounds, we are healed. And some people go to this and they use this to say, oh, you can have your physical ailments healed if you just trust, you know. This is talking about spiritual healing. It's talking about your soul being healed. It's talking about that supernatural work of God to forgive your sins, to make you a new creation, to give you a new heart. And yes, yes, someday to heal your body, but that happens when Christ comes back. But this, this idea that his wounds, they heal us in our soul. And then someday when we see Christ face to face, he will heal us completely, soul and body. So the suffering and this death for our sins provides this for us. And notice verse number six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So here the, the Jewish preacher is speaking to Israel and saying, we've all sinned. I mean, that's what this book is about. He's saying, listen, we've sinned against God. But I think we can expand it beyond just the Jewish people, right? Because this isn't just true of them. This is true of all of us. All of us have sinned. And he gives this Really a neat illustration here in verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. And if you've been around sheep, you know how dumb they are. I watched a video a couple, I think it's probably last year. I watched a video last year about this little uh, sheep that was out there with the shepherd and there was a crevice in the ground. You might've seen this on YouTube and he would like jump in the crevice. The sheep would, not the shepherd. Sheep would jump in the crevice and the shepherd would pull him out and then he'd turn back around and just jump right back in. Like, how dumb is that? You know, we're like sheep, aren't we? We're dumb. Yeah, how stupid, how dumb sin is. I mean, you ever, you ever just like think about other people's sin and think, why did they do that? That's dumb. But then have you thought back to your own sin and thought, why do I do that? We're like dumb sheep. And, and see, the the... The part that is leading, is going astray is that we go astray from God. It's not just that we do dumb things that hurt ourselves. It's that we actually sin against God. And it's that we are all going our own way. This, this shows the nature of sin is, is selfishness. That we all want to be our own gods. We won't have anyone, especially God tells us what to do. I can live life without God. I can live life on my own. It's seeing our sin for what it truly is. And really, in order to trust Jesus as 
the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And really, in order for us to love Christ, we must truly understand our sin. You see, we can say the word sin. It sounds so generic. It just sounds like, oh, sins. Or we might think about, oh, those bad people over in Hamas. They're bad sinners, right? Or that person, I know, they sin against me. But we should actually go back and think about ourselves. Think about your own sin. Think about the, the high view that you have of yourself. When you think of other people, you think, oh, those people. And myself, I'm pretty good. That's sin, right? I mean, so much so that we say, oh, those people. And we put them down with our words because we think of ourselves so highly. Or, or we think, oh, you know, I'm, God thinks I'm a pretty good person. That's sin. It's pride. Or even some of the things we've talked about the past few weeks, we talked about our words. I mean, did, did you feel convicted by that when we talked about how no corrupt words should come out of our mouths? Ooh. Or, or we should not have bitterness in our hearts towards people. Oh, that's, that's, that's difficult. Or we should be giving people. Oh, it's easy to be selfish. Those are the sins we're talking about right there. This text is saying that Christ hung on the cross for those sins. And so we should put our mind upon that when we think about Christ's death, but we should also put our mind upon what Christ accomplished. Because look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the contrast here is clear. All have sinned. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And notice that the Lord God, that's Yahweh God, laid upon Jesus, laid upon the servant of the Lord, the iniquity, the punishment of us all. So think about Christ on that Christ, that cross, the innocent sacrifice. And while he was on that cross, God the Father, he poured out his wrath upon his son for our sins. In the sacrificial system, there would be the head of the household or a priest or the high priest who would, would take the sacrifice and he would be the one to perform it, would kill the lamb, kill the goat, whatever the sacrifice was. See, the majority of Israelites did not actually sacrifice their own animals. And that might Surprised some of you, but it wasn't like, you know, that, you know, every person would go into the temple and sacrifice their own animal. It was someone was doing it on behalf of you. And so the, what, what forgave the, the Israelites of their sins wasn't some kind of ritual they went through. It wasn't like they went up and they did the sacrifice perfect. And because they did that, they were forgiven. No, someone else gave the sacrifice for them. The innocent lamb died on behalf of them. Atonement was made by the priest with the blood sacrifice. But listen to this. It was only applied to those who had true repentance and faith in God. See, it wasn't like all of Israel was forgiven. Just because there was a sacrifice given for Israel, and just because the head of the household sacrificed a lamb for his family, doesn't mean that every person was forgiven. There was only forgiveness for those who truly repented and believed, even in Israel, even in the Old Testament. You say, Pastor Ben, how do you know that? Look at verse number one. What does he say in verse number one? Ephesians, uh, sorry, not Ephesians. We're not there anymore. Isaiah 53, one. Who has 
believed our report, who has believed this message. And the conclusion really is in the New Testament, the Jewish people, most of them did not believe the report. And, and, and what, what this is saying here is this, there, yes, Christ came as the atonement, but you must believe and appropriate that for yourself, that he died for me. And when he does, the Bible promises that he reconciles all who believe. He restores the relationship with God. He cleanses you of your sin. He makes you a new person. That's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question I think we've got to ask, every person in here has to ask themselves, and I ask you, do you truly believe? Do you truly believe? Not just like, I, I, th- I know it's true, or I think it's probably true, but have you truly trusted in Jesus Christ alone? alone? Have you stopped fighting? Have you stopped saying, I'm, I'm going to try to save myself? Have you surrendered to the Lord? Are you trusting in Christ alone? One of the saddest realities is that many will hear the gospel and they won't truly believe. Some people just want to hold on to their sin. Some people want to hold on to their religion. Some people want to hold on to other people's view of them. And they don't give their life to Christ. This was really the heartbreak of the Apostle Paul. He wrote about this in Romans chapter 9, where he just said, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is, is that they would be saved. So Romans 9 and 10 was written basically to say, but they're not believing. Israel did not believe the message. They're not believing that, that Christ is their, that Jesus is their Christ. He is their Messiah. And so notice what was written. Romans, this is Paul writing, Romans 10, 15. As it is written in Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now let's stop right there and say this. If you know Christ, if you've been rescued by Christ, if you have the good news, this is our heart's desire right here, is to go out with our feet and tell people about Christ. So that's a question for us. How can we do that in our life? But notice verse 16. But they, and he's speaking of Israel, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And that broke his heart. And I'm sure you can think of individuals that you're like, I'm praying for that person. But they have not obeyed the gospel. Obedience means that they say, I believe in Christ alone. Notice what the scripture does here. He says, oh, let's quote Isaiah 53. For Isaiah says, the Lord, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So he's saying they don't believe. And so what's the conclusion? Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. And what we read in Isaiah 53, and what you've heard this morning, friends, it's the word of Christ. And so here's the question for you. Are you going to believe it? If you don't know Christ in here, can I just tell you, this is the most important question of your life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? What will you do with Jesus? And for us believers, for us those who know Christ, are depending upon his work, this should excite joy in our heart as we sing and we praise the Lord for his work on the cross for us. Let's pray.